This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Hewlett Packard Enterprise, an edge to cloud platform as a service company built to sustainably transform your business. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. In this episode, UN Deputy Secretary General Amina Muhammad joins Washington Post Live to discuss the high stakes for protecting our planet in the COP26 conference this November in Scotland. Let's listen. Hello and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Frances Steed Sellers, a senior writer here at the Washington Post. Our program today is part of the Protecting Our Planet series, and it comes as the climate crisis takes center stage in the lead up to the COP26 talks in Glasgow in November. My guest today is Amina J. Mohammed. She's the Deputy Secretary General of the United Nations. A very warm welcome to Washington Post Live. Great to be with you. I'd like to start right away with those important talks coming up in November. What's at stake? What specific actions do you hope world leaders will take? And what's the cost if those steps are not taken? There's a lot at stake for for every COP that we have. um, There is a breaking moment and for Glasgow, this is about lives, it's about livelihoods. Um, It's really about having a breakthrough um, on the Paris Agreement to make sure that we keep um, with with 1.5 degrees. And so that journey to COP less than a month away, um, what we will be looking to see are all those ingredients to a package that are needed for us to come out to say, yes, the world is on track um, to meeting the Paris commitments. And they will have to do with trade, they will have to do with finance, they will have to do with NDCs at each and every country, national determined contributions um, that will meet the ambitions of working towards um, net zero. Um, so a lot at stake, um, and I, I can't say enough, as you've seen with all the programs most recently, there really is a red alert. Uh, we picked a fight with nature, it's fighting back. And we've got to make peace and making peace is that Paris Agreement and the key elements to it are those that have been discussed in the General Assembly at the UN that uh, passed last week and those that we will see being discussed in Paris. Well, let's talk a little bit more about the uh, the finance aspect that you just mentioned. Um, rich countries pledged one billion by 2020 to help less wealthy nations uh, reduce emissions. Many of those targets are not being met. Uh, what can the UN do and what should be done to make sure that some of those targets are met or other ones are put in place? Well, the 100 billion every year by by this time now is is long overdue and it hasn't been met. Uh, The meetings that leaders came to uh, convene by the Secretary General last week managed to get a little more on the table. The United States put $11.4 billion uh, on the table. That's to the 100 billion. It's not the 100 billion that is going to uh, be the investments that are needed for climate action, we are going to need trillions, but it is the handshake to say the world is going to be serious about this and the rich world, uh, the world that actually has had most to do with uh, putting a burden of uh, climate, um, the climate crisis on the shoulders of the most vulnerable. Um, So what the UN will continue to do is to advocate for those resources to come annually, um, to provide and convene the spaces for others to to move and uh, to to crowd in more finance that countries can leverage. Uh, the private sector will be one um, sector that one will look at. Um, but essentially, this is going to be about our rich countries stepping up 
and providing the finances that are needed for adaptation, that are needed to make the transitions on energy, on connectivity, on food systems. Um, uh, the, the, the list goes on to what we can do, huge opportunities. But right now we need leadership to step up and put, as they say, your money where your mouth is. <laughs> um, Deputy Secretary General, we've been hearing from listeners and readers, and I have a question I'd like to read to you that comes to us from William Miller in Kentucky, who says, what can the UN do to motivate countries to work more diligently on the sustainable development goals, especially as it pertains to the climate crisis? Well, we, we have the framing for, for the sustainable development goals, and I think that makes sense to everyone at four years and everyone engaged. What we have not to do is to separate um, the actions that are needed from climate um, and the sustainable development goals. Um, uh, our goal 13 um, for a climate is, is very well integrated into that framework. So what we try to do with the footprint we have around the world in over 131 countries is to help countries get those pipelines together of investments in off-grid power, um, in food systems and the way in which we transform them. Um, and and to, to put those investments that will give greener jobs, um, where will address blue economies, um, and uh, will make sure that women and young people are at the center of this. All of that requires the means of implementation, be it financing or technology. And so our convening around these issues and bringing to the table those that can, uh, make, uh, can make the leapfrogging that we need today uh, at the scale and with the urgency is, is some of what we do. Um, it's, it's important for us to, to give the implications of inaction. We're already seeing it with lives lost and livelihoods and property with these intense um, climate events that we get. Um, I see it myself when I go home to Nigeria, um, where Lake Chad itself, a lack of investment um, in that region has uh, exacerbated the conflicts that are there, has put women and young people at risk uh, with, with, a, with a sense of no hope for the future. Um, and, and I think that if we could see a restoration project, a stabilization project, would put money into agriculture, into fisheries, um, into power off-grid, we would see, um, you know, return of those societies and more peace. Um, so I think there are many ways in which we can motivate, just depending on the context that we find ourselves in, islands or, or, or landlocked countries alike. So you're, you're speaking a lot about underrepresented voices. And of course, um, the pandemic delayed COP26 by a year. There have been acti activists calling for further postponement, arguing that the vaccine and quarantine requirements will further disadvantage countries that are underrepresented anyway. Do you think that's a real concern? And if so, what should be done about it? I know that the British government has taken some steps, but are you concerned as this meeting is pending? We must listen to all voices and there are legitimate concerns around uh, the restrictions because of the pandemic. And we have to remember where restrictions are in place and we need to make sure we protect people um, that we are we are very responsible to that. Um, having said that, these concerns have been brought to the British government. We work with them. Um, many of those um, uh, barriers that were there have been taken down. There are still more issues that we have to discuss. But, you know, just as the pandemic came in and we kept people working and children in school using technology, um, so where we don't actually make it on the day, um, I'm sure that we will try to make sure that there is as much inclusion as possible, particularly from those stakeholders outside of the government negotiations. Um, when we 
finish those negotiations at COP, we have to come back to country and work with stakeholders. So they are the most important constituency and they need to be involved. Um, it, it is, as I say, tough, but we are um, we're trying to work towards bringing down as many of those um, hurdles that they will have to, to cross to get to COP26. Uh, postponement? I, I don't think so. I think, you know, the postponing is such an important discussion like this. It does mean that we put more lives at risk, that we don't come to agreement um, and that, uh, you know, we don't take seriously enough what needs to be there. I, I think that we will have the representation, voices will be heard and the negotiations will be inclusive. Well, voices are certainly making themselves heard in the streets, um, in protests. There are activists saying that leaders talk a good game, but don't do enough. Do you think there's truth to those sorts of allegations? Absolutely, I do. <laughs> um, I do. I, I think that we promised Paris six years ago and we haven't delivered. So, of course, leaders have been talking what they're not delivering. And we have to keep the promise of the SDGs. We have to keep the promise of Paris. And, and this is why uh, COP26 and Glasgow is so important. There are many expectations on the 100 billion, um, on the 1.5 degrees, on the end to coal that the SG has been um, uh, has been advocating for. And, and I think that, um, you know, there's, the proof is going to be in the eating of the pudding, and that's going to be 26, COP26 in Glasgow. Let's see what we have to deliver on the table. There were good signs at the General Assembly last week um, when we saw uh, commitments made to end the financing of coal, when we saw more money on the table for 100 billion. Still a lot more to do um, and less uh, than 40 days to go before COP26. You've mentioned the Sustainable Development Goals, of course, um, the 17 of them, and I'd just like to dig a little deeper. Do you feel you're on track to meet them by 2030? Look, just before the pandemic started, we launched the decade, we were not on track. And so COVID has further exacerbated that. However, having said that, there is a silver lining in the cloud. Many of the things that we have, we thought to do before the pandemic, um, closing the digital divide, uh, uh, the transition on, on power um, to, to solar power, off-grid, those things have become a reality now. And so in the response uh, to the pandemic and its recovery, there's opportunity. But again, we have to put this back on the table of leaders of rich countries where resources are. Are we able to free up sufficient resources um, for the scale and the urgency with which we need to invest in all these opportunities? If we don't, then we risk keeping the promise of the SDGs. We had the SDG moment this year, um, the second one that we've had, and a lot of commitments made, a lot of optimism, um, but they have got to be matched by the resources that come um, from our countries, uh, from our governments, from the private sector to make this a reality. Yeah, and so last month, the, this incredibly frightening report came from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Um, over the past year, rich countries have suffered from wildfires, floods, climate change has really come home. Do you think that will make a difference in meeting the kinds of uh, steps that you're talking about? Look, this was a real wake-up call. It was a red alert, um, uh, code red, uh, for what's at stake. Um, that report was telling us that, look, we're likely to reach those targets that we were talking sooner than we expected. And that means that we are going to see so much more suffering. Um, and so, therefore, 
it is a wake-up call. Um, it is one that needs to be adhered to now. Um, we, we, can't, we can no longer say to people that we've got to wait another month, two months, six months before we can find investments coming in on adaptation. Um, we're asking, for instance, uh, our multilateral development banks that 50% of their climate finance needs to be on adaptation. This is where vulnerable countries hurt the most. Put the money there. It's low-hanging fruit. We can do this. We're yet to see that. And I hope that in the coming weeks and months, we will have uh, those promises and begin to see those investments come through. Yeah, talking about promises, help me step back and look at the big picture here. I think there are 86 um, pledges to the UN of improved uh, emissions reductions that could reduce uh, um, warming. Um, on the other hand, China, India and Turkey have not told us what they're going to be doing. What is the big picture and how do you make sense of where we will actually be given the prognoses are so varied? Well, we have to keep asking um, and pushing uh, the limits and, and engaging with this. Uh, clearly, uh, good signals from, from China when they said they would stop investing, uh, financing investments in coal, uh, but they need to peak earlier. Now, that's a difficult uh, conversation to happen with some developing countries, uh, particularly India, where you have a huge population um, and you can't turn around and say, well, your development's got to be curtailed. So the negotiations about how um, development happens and the investments that are needed uh, for them perhaps to peak earlier, to use uh, green technology, um, need to be made available. That's not always happening in countries like India. We need to bring more investments to the table. I think that they will, uh, we hope that they will make it um, with the targets that we have set. Uh, but it's a continuous dialogue. It's a continuous negotiation. Um, it is a opening up of the implications of inaction on others. So you're doing harm to others by not making those promises for Paris. Um, I think we, we, we need to see um, you know, a balance in uh, what we do on mitigation, what we do on adaptation uh, to make it happen. We also need to involve a lot more our younger people um, in uh, advocating for the changes that need to happen at the domestic level. Um, this is where it's at. How we change our consumption um, and our production is very important to the future. Um, and this is why we need really young people in uh, the mix, at the table, uh, shaping what those investments will look like. It, it, it will be their future and it will affect future generations. Uh, so to big countries, we would say, please look at the small countries. The implications of what you're doing uh, will not only affect your population for which you are interested in, um, but also um, others, your neighborhood. Uh, not far. You don't have to go far in the world today to see that everyone is affected by climate change. You have um, already referred to your own country of Nigeria and its impacts. Um, you've also talked about economic opportunity. Talk to me a little bit about that. These, these challenges are so overwhelming. How do you stop people from throwing their hands up and, and just saying, you know, let's deal with the immediate pandemic, let's deal with our immediate problems. Um, how do you keep the focus on the possibilities ahead that could be good ones with green technology and other things? I think this is where the partnerships matter, both within a country and, and outside of one, and, and really focusing on the bite-sized efforts that one can make uh, towards uh, climate action, making uh, an integrated response to it. So, for instance, when I go to northeast Nigeria, and I mean, I grew up there around Lake Chad. Um, Lake Chad is a shadow of itself. Uh, it, it had a huge fishing population. Um, this was a thriving community, trade across borders at that time. Um, we all had an education there, a really good one, um, access to health. 
Um, and yet what we've seen with climate change is as that livelihood was challenged by the changes in Lake Chad and it was drying up, it also created um, almost a perfect storm, if you would, uh, for conflict, for instability, for the loss of livelihoods, lives now because of that conflict. Now, as we are coming back um, and winning the war against Boko Haram, at the same time, you need to put the investments back into restoring the lake because it restores livelihoods. Um, and that's, that's important. Reintegration of all those thousands that are in camps, women, children, um, who need to come back in again. So a number of strands that need to be pulled together, lots of partnerships that are needed for this. Um, and remembering that's only one part of the challenge in this country of over 200 million. We have the challenges where population growth, the demand for food um, and the tensions between farmers um, and uh, um, our herders are very real um, uh, for, for survival. Um, and that needs to be taken into consideration when one is making investments and when one is considering um, how to keep the peace um, and ensure prosperity for all. Well, I mean, the African continent, continent, I think, contributes the least of any continent to global warming. You're talking about these extremes of poverty. How do the people living in Africa address these issues in, in a way that, that they just don't feel victimized by it? And, and um, how are you persuading them to join these incredibly difficult targets? This is, a, this is an uphill struggle. We've been pro making promises for decades, and I, I think that African people are frustrated, they are angry, um, and they mm -hmm. have lost trust in leadership and in partnerships across the globe. I think it is now incumbent on the international community to say what it's going to do um, to, to, to address that and to perhaps win back some of that trust. Now, we have some of the youngest population um, in the world are uh, over 70% in Africa. That's a huge opportunity, amazing human resource. Um, I mean, once you empower Africans, just watch those Africans in diaspora. They are leading incredible institutions uh, in technology and public service um, all over the world. So it's a missed opportunity. Um, I think that, you know, for Africans, uh, they continue to do what they can with what they have, and they are excelling. We still have some of our economies that are are growing. We have digital divides that are slowly being closed. Um, we have climate action that is happening in many places with young climate activists who are um, pushing government um, to, to, uh, to, to make the right decisions um, as we look towards um, greener technology and opportunities for young people, particularly our women and girls. Deputy Secretary General, you've mentioned food insecurity, and I know it's a cause that, that matters a lot to you. We're seeing crop production going down. We're seeing populations growing. What do you see as the pathways to success in that particular area? Well, this is a whole of system response that we need, and we've been through a two-year process on, on the food systems transformation um, that went round the world. Over 150 countries have engaged with this. It is about different pathways um, that see the health agenda, that see the climate agenda together with the production of food. Uh, those that produce the food have to be where the investments are made first. So local producers, indigenous people, particularly our women, uh, then bringing in technology so that we can leapfrog a lot of what is needed to enhance that production from where you produce it to get it to the table. 
Um, but it does have many, many stakeholders. This is a huge ecosystem. Um, and for that, it is beyond any one country. It relies on a trade system that has to be more fair and just. It relies on financial systems that you have to have access to those resources to make that work. Um, so the Food System Summit itself, I think, has come out with a number of key areas, which you will see um, are part of climate action uh, to make this happen. So it's, it's not climate action in one silo, food systems in another or education in another. It's all coming together. Um, and that's where we need as the UN with the footprint that we have around the world to be more helpful, facilitate and convene those partnerships and the action that, that, that should happen. Uh, when we talk about food insecurity, of course, my mind goes right away to Madagascar and some of the images we've seen coming from there. Um, COVID-19 has uh, delayed and complicated response. Um, how do you see that being managed, these twin crises, food insecurity anyway, climate change and COVID? How do you see them being managed? Well, a big discussion that happened uh, again uh, in this global town hall for, for our global village. It, it is perhaps the uh, the biggest uh, blight that we have on our, our copybook uh, as, a, as a global community that we've not been able to deliver the vaccines. The inequality story here um, is is terrible. I don't know what we're going to say to to the to, to the next generation. Um, but when there has been a pandemic, for us to rise to the occasion and act as one global family, we failed to do that. Um, and most of all, again, the twin crises, the burden of climate action on small island developing states in Africa, uh, the burden of inaction on getting a vaccine to everyone as a global public good um, has seen collapsed economies, which are creating instability, where lives are being lost and livelihoods have been lost um, in the millions in terms of jobs. Um, so it, it, is, um, it is a crisis. It is a twin crisis. I hope that we can continue uh, to urge leaders uh, to find what it is, what button it is that we have to press uh, to get action. And we will keep pressing away until we get that action. But we do need voices. We need more amplification um, for those um, who are able um, to, to bring that uh, to the forefront, the implications of it. Um, at the UN, we do that around the world. Um, but we need to see individual voices amplifying that using social media, uh, using mediums like this. Thank you for having us on today, because what we're able to do is to take that out a little wider um, to different communities that perhaps don't know the implications. So, um, look, it's it's really about the situation today um, is not a good reality. We're in a pretty big mess. But the aspirations, the ambitions that we have, the possibilities and the opportunities are amazing. There's a gap and we need to work to close that gap. COP26 in Glasgow is one step towards closing that gap. And, and there are so many other steps that we can all take. And be a little bit more specific about the actual steps the UN can take in closing those gaps. Well, first of all, implementing the frameworks that we have. The 2030 agenda for, for the Sustainable Development Goals is 17 goals that I do not see that anything is not included. Um, and so, again, our job is to convene, to get the leaders to the table who have the wherewithal to do it and try to see how we can make them do that. Now, in some cases, it's worked. As I said last week, we got a commitment um, from uh, some of our leaders on finances that are coming to the table. We've managed in, in the alliance for Glasgow um, of the private sector to have commitments to net zero of asset managers of over 70 trillion. So we are moving and what we need to see is this flowing. 
um, and to have those pipelines and the capacity for us to to um, to implement those pipelines of projects um, uh, right up front in, in some of the most poorest of countries. The UN is there. Our teams are there to help that happen. Um, what I do think is that we've got the vehicles, the passengers are on board, and what we need is a lot more fuel to get further. I don't want to let you go this afternoon without asking you about another crisis, and that's the humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan. And I'd like to ask you, what role do you think the international community should play in that crisis? I think the first role that we have to have is to protect um, those that are at risk. 18 million lives are at risk, and so the humanitarian crisis itself, we need to fund that. The UN has stayed to deliver and can continue to protect that uh, that, that community of 18 million. The second really is the gains of the last 20 years in which we have invested in women and girls' rights, in particular education, their empowerment. Um, and that has to be protected. And so if we're going to talk to the Taliban and there is going to be recognition on the table, then it really has to be, if you're wanting to be a member of this family, there are certain values and rights and norms and standards that we all, um, we all live up to. And, and that needs to happen. And we need to make sure that that voice for women and for girls is up front and center. Um, I think that there is the possibilities now of an economic crisis because as the Taliban came in, um, the taps turned off on the economy and, and, and so they should at that point in time. But this is a double-edged sword. Those, uh, those monies that uh, now um, are not available were for services, for health, for education, uh, for water, services. We need to find different mechanisms as we talk uh, to the Taliban to make sure that people on the ground are not hurt by this. Um, and again, I would say the United Nations is there. This is a vehicle that you can use. We've done this before, but we need unity in the international community around what happens um, from rich countries, from the neighborhood. But we all need to be speaking with one voice um, to make sure uh, that Afghanistan and in particular the women and girls um, are protected. So should the UN withhold aid, in your view, uh, until the Taliban gives reassurances and, and specific assurances that the rights of women and girls will be protected? I think it's very important that we don't withhold aid from the people that it matters most to. I think that we should use it to leverage what we need um, in terms of the Taliban coming to the table. But we should find other ways and means of making sure that those are affected most and that the same women and girls that we're trying um, to protect, uh, that we find resources to, to, to get to them. Um, there needs to be um, zero tolerance for any community that prevents the rights of women um, and girls uh, being trodden on. Uh, education is one, health is another. I mean, you know, we are 50% um, of humanity and, and that in itself should say something. You visited Haiti recently following the catastrophic earthquake. Just as the last question, could you tell us a little bit about what you saw there and whether you have hope and optimism for the future of that country? Oh, well, I mean, you know, going to Haiti in solidarity because it was an earthquake that was not just, uh, you know, centered on any one urban center. It was all over the country. Um, so, you know, really our heart went out to all those that we couldn't even see or get to. Um, this is a, a country that has had one tragedy after another. And for this to befall them after the assassination of their president was just, you know, one blow too many. However, the resilience um, and the, uh, the optimism, the courage of women and young people in Haiti is something that the world needs to come behind 
and to make sure that they can get an election in time uh, to put the right government in, to put the right people that represent them, so that they too can have a chance at recovering from, of course, a, a crisis like the, the latest earthquake, uh, but also the, 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 the really dire levels of poverty um, and, uh, and, and uh, climate action that needs to happen there um, in, in, uh, should have happened yesterday. I mean, this is not a country uh, that uh, doesn't have the opportunity uh, to grow like the, the rest of, uh, of the world. Uh, but there are major challenges, and the challenges are not just for Haiti to contend with. Um, we need the international community not to have the fatigue uh, that perhaps that they do have, um, but we need to step up um, and, to, and to follow through, accompany Haiti. There are many Haitis in this world, um, but my visit just reaffirmed uh, my commitment day in, day out to find the ways and means, the partnerships, the resources, um, and the hope to keep um, uh, giving uh, to people of Haiti that we haven't forgotten them um, and that they will not be left behind and that we will do our best to ensure that they have equal opportunities as we go around the world with others. I'm going to take two thoughts away, particularly from this conversation, and that is one of resilience of the people we've been talking about who've been so hard hit by so many disasters, and also the notion of follow through, which is so important in what you said. Thank you so much, Amina Jade Mohammed, for speaking with such humanity about COP26 and the other challenges we face. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. That's all we have time for today. If you would like to see further programming from Washington Post Live, please go to WashingtonPostLive.com. I'm Francis Steed Sellers, and thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.